I trust you have opened your Bibles and found uh, Galatians uh, chapter 5 verse 16 is where we'll be. As you, if you're still getting there, that is fine. And one day a knock came on my door and sometimes when there's an unexpected knock, you kind of have a sense what it is. And this time it was what I thought it would be, a couple guys there to share about God with me. And they did use very Christian language, and they said, yeah, we believe the Bible too. But they had another book with them as well, and they, this was some additional revelation of God. And we got into a conversation, we're talking about things, and it did not take very long for me to realize that these gentlemen believed that uh, salvation by grace alone wasn't sufficient. They thought you had to add something to it, add some works to it. And it wasn't long before they found out I was one of those guys who believed that salvation is uh, by grace through faith, and you don't add anything to it. And so as we were talking, they finally brought up the kind of the gotcha question, the catch-22 question to me. And that was, they said, so are you saying you believe that a Christian can do whatever he or she wants to do? How would you answer that? Because it's kind of a tricky one. Because if you say yes, then they'll take you to passages like the text we'll be in today where it lists some, some things that say the people who do these things won't inherit the kingdom of God. But if you say no, then they'll say, ah, so there is something involved with what you do earning salvation. So it's kind of a tricky question. How would you answer it? Well, I think our text today gives us some insight into this. And I'm thankful for our text because it begins to answer a question of how in the world does Christian freedom not lead to unrestrained sin? We kind of saw this last week as we were looking and Pastor Matt opened up uh, Galatians with us. We saw that, that Paul had shown that our freedom should lead to love and righteousness rather than becoming an excuse for sin. But now the question is how? How do we do this? What keeps us from just misusing our freedom to do all sorts of things that we shouldn't do? And our text today addresses this question. So we're going to look at it. Now, the passage we come to is a very well-known passage. It's the fruit of the Spirit and one that many of us are familiar with, and a lot going on here. And of course, there's a lot of questions with this. Well, what are these different things, and, and how do you get them, and how does this work? And so we're going to do something a little different um, that we normally don't do. We're actually going to spend two weeks in a row in the same passage. So I'm going to talk about it today, and the next week, Pastor Jay's going to come and fix everything I mess up. Um, not really, but... Um, but we're going to spend some extra time on here mulling this over because this is really important stuff. Uh, before this morning, let's go ahead and ask God for his help, uh, and then we'll read the passage together. But let's pray. God, we, we are so thankful today for your word. As we think about the elements of today, the worship in, in song, worship through our giving, worship through prayer, um, worship as we uh, connect and encourage uh, one another, um, God, now we come to the time where we open your word, and we want this to be an act of worship as well. God, it's just incredible that you, the, the creator of the universe, the one who is like no other, you are so different from us, so far above us, and yet you gave us your word so that we would know you, that we would actually know you, the creator. Without it, we would be left looking at creation saying, somebody must have done this, but it'd be our imagination figuring out who. God, to actually know truth about you, to know who you are, to know how we are to relate to you and be in relationship with you, we thank you for that. 
And God, as we do that, we know that this is not just a process that we do through our, our efforts. I mean, you've given us intellect. We can read and understand, but to really do that deep spiritual heart surgery, God, we need your spirit for this. So would you work in us this morning? Would you cause us to have ears that hear and listen? Would you soften our hearts? Would you help us to apply the truth into our lives? Uh, we need you for this, O oh God. So help us this morning. Help us this morning as we come to your word. We pray this in the name of Jesus and through the Spirit. Amen. Wonderful. Well, well let's read the passage, and then let's, let's look at what, what's going on here. So I'm going to read Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 16. We'll read through the end of the chapter. Paul says this, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. And there's our passage today. So here, as we come to this today, Paul turns his attention now to the details of how does this freedom work? And he begins with a basic command, verse 16, walk by the Spirit. And in in the Greek language, uh, it is a command. It's written grammatically as a command. It's something that he expected the readers to do. So he wrote to the people in Galatia, he said, walk by the Spirit, and this is how you live righteously. This is how you achieve righteousness. This is, this is how you don't use your freedom to just let sin run wild is by walking by the Spirit. Wonderful. So how does that work? It sounds easy, but there's a problem, and that's this thing called the flesh. See, in verse 17, the flesh and the Spirit, they're opposed to each other. He says, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And for some of you, this will bring up Romans 7 and 8 to mind. Very similar passage, albeit very much longer than this. So what is Paul talking about here? There's, There's a war going on, but who are the opponents in this war? And I think understanding, especially understanding what Paul means by the flesh, is very important to understand today's text. So let's start with that. Now, in order to talk about what the flesh is, I think it will be helpful to talk about what the flesh is not. Right? So let's say, see some things about what the flesh is not. First of all, the flesh isn't a reference to our bodies. Well, it includes our bodies, but it's not a reference merely to our bodies. What Paul's not doing, he's not pitting the physical world against the spiritual world. 
And misunderstanding Paul here could cause us to think that to live spiritually, to live righteously, is to cast off the physical world, but this has some big problems with it. And ultimately, it becomes based on human effort. Um, as we think about what Paul's saying here, one of the issues, we've actually seen this rise up throughout history, this idea that the physical world is bad and needs to be cast off. The, the spiritual world is good. And this was what was behind Gnosticism and other things that were very similar to Gnosticism throughout the, the decades. And typically, the idea being you, everything physical is bad, and if we just despise it and ignore it and just focus on spiritual things, we'll be fine. There's some problems here. One of the problems is this is just bad theology. After all, what does the Bible say? God created the world, and, and what did he call it? He said it was good, yeah. And by the way, he created you and me, physical beings, humans. Yes, we are both physical and spiritual beings. And he created us and he said, these guys are good. In fact, the Bible says that we'll not become spirit beings someday. We, we will get renewed bodies. So God's not trying to get rid of the physical. And, he's, and he cares about our bodies. He cares about what we do with our bodies. Um, it's not right to treat our bodies flippantly or with contempt. Another problem is this does lead to human effort. It leads to me saying, okay, it's my job now to push off the physical world, to despise it. I'm going to do things that do that. And I'm going to work really hard at focusing on the spiritual. And that becomes just more human effort. And surprisingly, or maybe not surprising, I don't know. But if you look at history, this whole idea, Gnosticism and the similar things to it, actually led to greater sin. And it kind of follows. If the physical world is to be despised. If the physical world doesn't matter, then it ends up kind of becoming, it doesn't matter what you do in the physical world. And strangely enough, Gnosticism, which you think would be like, I'm going to ignore the physical world and not give in to anything physical. Actually, Gnosticism historically ended up in very uh, terrible sexual sin over and over again throughout history. It's very interesting. We're going to see later on why that is. But Paul's not saying that. He's not saying the flesh is your bodies, okay? So he's not pitting physical against spiritual. Paul's also not talking about two human natures at war with each other. Misunderstanding Paul here makes us think that the answer is to master ourselves, uh, master this war. We might get the picture of the cartoon imagery of like the, the devil on one shoulder, the angel on the other shoulder, and they're always bickering back and forth, and it's kind of up to you to flick one or the other. And that's not the picture that Paul is painting. Uh, one author says this, quoting E.P. Saunders. He says, but this life is a war, a war between spirit and flesh. But it's not some personal psychological struggle or the struggle within a person's soul. Rather, as E.P. Sanders says, the war has to do with which power one belongs to. The powers are flesh and spirit. So I think sometimes we look at a passage like this, especially in and we might come away thinking, oh, uh, the Christian has two natures that are fighting against each other. Is this what Paul's saying? Well, it's really not. And, and I think it's good to perhaps have an analogy to help us kind of see this. So the Bible, when it talks about our human nature, it, it talks about how we as humans, we are both physical and spiritual beings. And in our natural state, because of sin, every part of us is affected by sin, both physical and spiritual. We call this the doctrine of total depravity. 
Uh, total depravity is not saying you're as bad as you could be. It's just saying every aspect of you is infected by sin. Your, your body is, your soul is, spiritually, physically, you're infected by sin. Now, in our natural state, we are spiritually dead. We have no ability to relate to God, no ability to please God, no ability to have relationship with God. And so the Bible says that in the process of becoming saved, the Holy Spirit comes and breathes new spiritual life into us. He's not giving us a new human nature. We have a human nature. He's redeeming our human nature and giving us life where we can now have relationship with God. Now, does that mean that I have been perfected, that I'm no longer affected by sin? Well, no, I I still am. My human nature is still affected by sin, but now I have access to something beyond myself. I can start to rely on God's strength and his power. I can rely on the spirit. All right? So it's not like I'm battling two spirit beings on my shoulders. I'm having an internal psychological struggle. So that I have the ability to rely on the spirit or I have the ability to rely on myself. That's what Paul's getting at. Let me use an analogy that might help us. It might be terrible. Who knows? Because I made this one up. Um, But I brought one of my really, really old phones. I have this bad habit. I never throw phones away. They just sit in a drawer. And I guess you're not supposed to throw the batteries away, and I'm too lazy to go to the store and recycle it. So it just sits in my drawer forever. So this phone is probably coming up on 10 years old has not been turned on for a long time, and this phone does not work anymore. It doesn't do what it was designed to do. It's going to represent me and you. And it was designed for something different, but it's in a state that it's, it's not what it was meant to be, okay? So this is us, unable to function as God intended. This is us in our natural state, our, our human nature, okay? So the wrong view would be to say that when we get saved, we get this brand new nature. See my shiny new phone? I'm still paying it off. Um, and, and the idea is like this. It's almost like sometimes we imagine these two guys get duct taped together and they're forever in this struggle with each other in this battle. That's not what the Bible's teaching. All right. So what is the Bible teaching? Well, here's your nature. And, and then, oh, I have another thing down here. This is a battery pack. This thing will charge my phone over like five times over, okay? And this is going to represent the Holy Spirit, right? I have no ability in my natural state to connect to God. No ability to have relationship with him. So what happens when the Spirit breathes new life into me? Well, he makes a change in me. And I kind of get this, this new thing that I can connect with God, okay? So here's the picture of us. Now, still have my, look at that, my phone just turned on. Pretty cool, huh? Didn't even know it could turn on. <laughs> That's kind of part of the analogy, right? Like, just plugging in God. And, and what, what's happening now? I still have my, my human nature. It's still not perfected. But now it's able to start doing the things that God created it to do because it's connected to a new source of strength and power. It's connected to the Spirit. All right? So this is what Paul has in mind, life in the Spirit. Now, what's very possible to do, don't see this as an analogy of losing your salvation. You can't lose your salvation. But we do have the ability to kind of disconnect and kind of live in our own strength. This is living in the flesh. We might think that we're doing okay for a little while like this, but it won't be long until things 
go downhill pretty quickly, right? So this is life in the spirit. This is life in the flesh. Paul's not talking about two competing human natures. He's talking about what is your source of power? How are you trying to go about doing what God designed you to do? Are you relying on yourself? Are you relying on God? Okay, let's go on here. Let's continue on. The flesh also is not just our bad desires. When we think about the flesh, when we read about the flesh in the Bible, we might uh, read about the flesh and just say, oh, that's that bad stuff we want to do, right? Well, it's not just our bad desires. Human nature, even in its brokenness, has a desire to do good, but it's unable to overcome its sinful state. See, sometimes I think it's a mistake in churches when we say, you know, unsaved people can't do anything good. I see unsaved people do good things all the time. People do things that are very generous. They do things that are very moral. They do things that are self-sacrificial and noble and heroic. So what's going on here? Well, in our flesh, we have the ability to do good stuff, but we can never live up to God's standard and do truly righteous stuff. How do we summarize the whole law, God's standard? How does it sum up? It sums up into two statements, right? We're to love God with our entire being, and we're to love our neighbors as ourselves. And here's the thing, even on my own ability, even all the good stuff that I can try to do, none of it ever comes close to loving God with my whole being. Because in my natural state, I am infected with sin. And everything I do is slightly tainted by sin in some way. That's why Isaiah talks about this. It says our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. The most righteous thing you can do on your own strength is like a filthy rag. It's not saying you can't do something good, but it's saying you can't do anything that earns anything with God, that lives up to God's standard, that, that truly loves him as he deserves to be loved. So the flesh isn't just our bad desires. It actually, the flesh includes our good desires too. So, so what is the flesh? The flesh then is us in our natural state, both body and soul. So all of us, it's not just our body, it's body and soul. It's your whole being. The flesh is you in your natural state apart from God. So even in our desire to do good, if it's done in our own strength, that is the flesh. Scott McKnight defines it this way. He says it's the total person living outside of God's will and apart from God's guiding influence through the Spirit. A number of months ago, back in October, we were in Galatians 3, and we saw that the flesh can come in, yes, in irreligious form. We think of that when we think about the flesh. It's bad things. But it can also come in a religious form. Because the flesh has any tendency to say, I can do this on my own. Think about who Paul is writing to among the Galatians. What's the problem there? Are they trying to throw wild parties? Is Paul's addressing? Well, no, it's not. What, what's going on here is that, that these are people who are trying to be religious. They're trying to be good, but they're trying to do it in their own strength. They're trying to add to the gospel. This is the, this is the flesh. This is what Paul's talking about. They're going from this, relying on the spirit, and they're saying, you know, I can do this in my own strength, and they're trying to do that, right? So as we read here, and I'll go back here, look at, look at this, because this is, I think, helpful to think about it this way. 
As we look at verse 17, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. When Paul talks about keeping you from doing the things you want to do, he's talking about life in the flesh. He's looking at that aspect of us, our ability to live relying on ourselves. See, in the human heart, there is a desire to do good. And that's the weird thing about the flesh. It on the one hand, it desires, it's that desire that I can do good and make myself right with God. And at the same time, it's the very thing that keeps us from doing the good things we ought to do. So Paul's looking at this. He's not saying that somehow there's this force that makes you as a Christian do things you shouldn't do. He's looking at you through the flesh because look at how it gets contrasted in verse 18. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. So verse 17 is looking at life under the law. Verse 18 is looking at life through the Spirit. Same thing happens in Romans chapter 7, a very difficult passage, because it seems like there's this war where Paul can't seem to do anything right, and he's really looking at life in the flesh. And then you come to Romans 8, and guess what happens? He looks at, but, but in Christ, but in Christ righteousness is found. In Christ, I, I meet the law of righteousness. So this is what Paul, Paul is after then. He's looking at the flesh in all its forms, and Paul's argument is that anything that tries to obtain righteousness through human effort will ultimately oppose God. The Galatians, they were trying to obtain righteousness through the law. They were trying to say, yeah, we're following Jesus, but we kind of got to add some of the stuff that was in the law. We got to do circumcision and do these ceremonies. And Paul's saying, no, you've already obtained righteousness from Christ. You can't obtain it through your own works. And the reason he's getting at this is because he wants them to see the danger. So we move into verse 19. We see that the works of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit both end up producing something. They both lead somewhere. And it's actually kind of shocking. See, Paul says this, now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. It's not a complete list. It's kind of like he throws in at the end, things like these. Basically, lawlessness, wickedness, okay? This is what works of the flesh are going to lead to. Now, life in the Spirit also leads to something, and we have the fruit of the Spirit uh, mentioned in verse 22. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And again, this isn't a comprehensive list because he goes against such things there is no law. And we can go to other places and see there's other aspects of the the believer that, that might talk about justice or godliness. Um, so Paul is saying these go one way or the other. He wants us to see the danger of relying on the flesh. Because as you look at that list in verse 19 through 21, as you look at that, you might picture a very immoral person, right? Yeah, as we already said, are these people like your average picture of an immoral person that Paul's writing to? No, in fact, the people he's addressing are surprisingly pious. They're surprisingly religious. And Paul's actually saying, even when you're religious, relying on the flesh is going to lead to these things. That's kind of shocking. But what Paul's getting at is saying, self-reliance, human effort, even with religious zeal, is always going to move you to a place where you're opposing God and mistreating God. They always will. 
Now, I think they, I put the parable of the lost son or the prodigal son. I think it gives a really good example of this. And I want us to walk through this story. We're not going to read it, but in your community groups, uh, you'll read through that again. But I really, I really appreciate this, this parable Jesus told. Of course, we're, we're, a lot of us are very familiar with it. You have two sons, right? The younger son goes to his dad and he says, dad, give me my portion of the inheritance. Okay, pretty bad request, because after all, when do you normally get the inheritance? What happens to dad? Yeah, it's when he dies. So the son is basically saying to dad, dad, you're as good as dead to me. Give me my stuff. The son doesn't want the father. He wants the father's stuff. So he goes, and I don't know why, but the father gives him his stuff, and he gets his inheritance, and he goes and moves as far away as possible. And he spends his newfound wealth on some pretty terrible things, pretty shameful things. In fact, later in the story, we find out one of those things is prostitution. So he's just living the wild, irreligious lifestyle. And, and, and the younger son represents the irreligious way of relating to God. I don't want you. I want your stuff. I want the good things in life, but I don't care about what you do. I'm going to do whatever I want. All right? And of course, life doesn't turn out so well for the younger son. Now, he comes back to his senses. He goes to dad. And he says, dad, I have messed up. I've sinned against you. I've shamed you. Um, can I just be one of your servants? And what does the father do? It's amazing. He says, no, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put my robe on you. I'm going to put my ring on you. It's a, a symbol of honor, and it's a symbol of family authority. I'm going to throw a feast. He, he brought the son back in as a son, not a servant. And at this point in the story, the younger son no longer represents the irreligious way of approaching God. It represents the, the gospel way of approaching God. Total reliance on the father. He didn't deserve any of that stuff. It was totally the father doing everything for him. So the father's throwing the party in. And now sometimes we forget about the older son, but let's not forget about him. What's the older son doing during the party? He's refusing to come in, isn't he? He's out in the field and dad has to go out and come to him and plead for him to enter the party. Please understand this. We don't really get this in our culture, but if you were to enter into a more honor-shame culture, especially in the Middle East, to cause the father to come out and beg you to come into his party is such a dishonoring thing. It is a massive loss of face in that culture. Now, the older son, what does he say to dad when dad comes out? He says, dad, I've done everything you've ever asked. I've never disobeyed you. I've kept all the rules and you've never given me a party like that. You've never given me your stuff. What, what's going on? Well, the older son has the same problem as the younger son. He doesn't want the father. He wants the father's stuff. Only rather than approaching it in an irreligious way, what's he doing? He's approaching it in a religious way. I'm going to keep all the rules. I'm going to obey and follow things. I'm going to work really hard so I get the father's stuff. But do you see this? In the religious way, he ends up also mistreating his father and dishonoring his father. In the story, we see that any approach to God that's based in our own self, whether it's irreligious or religious, ultimately comes in opposition of the father and dishonors the father. I love how when Tim Keller tells this story, he says, while the world thinks there's only two ways to relate to the father, uh, either religiously or irreligiously, the Bible shows there's a third way, the gospel way. It's humility and dependence on God. But I tell that story just for the sake of saying, it doesn't matter if, if you're religious or irreligious, whether you're immoral or pious, 
If you're relying on yourself, if you're living in the flesh, you will end up in a place where you oppose God. And in fact, I gave you an example from history just earlier about Gnosticism did exactly that. How does something that tries to just say the physical world is not where we focus, we focus on the spiritual world, how does it turn into sexual sin? Well, it did because it was based in the flesh and it ended up turning into opposition to God. Now, on the other hand, as we look at the fruit of the Spirit, we see that this is a result of walking in the Spirit, that walking in the Spirit leads to something else. Now, let me ask a question. Does anybody here have a Vitamix? Show of hands, who owns a Vitamix? One happy customer, two, three, a few happy customers, great. How many of you have seen a Vitamix at the fair? Number of you. Let me tell you, it's the only thing sold at the fair that's worth the money that stands up to the reputation. They're amazing. I know some of you are going to come up to me and be like, you haven't tried the chamois yet. They're really cool too. But no, the Vitamix is amazing. It's a powerful blend. It's powerful that when you, you turn that guy on full blast, you can throw an apricot in it with the whole pit in there, and it will completely grind it up where you don't even know there's an apricot pit in your smoothie. Pretty cool. And in fact, they're so powerful, you can, the blade spins so fast, has so much friction that if you make soup in it or heat water, you can actually heat water. You can make soup in it and make it hot just by the blade spinning. And they have this recipe for chicken tortilla soup. So we got ours about 15 years ago. We're like, we're going to try the chicken tortilla soup. This is going to be really cool. But you got to be really careful with Vitamix recipes. you got to follow those steps because there's the step where you make the broth and it gets really hot. Then there's a step where you put the chicken in. You just want to pulse it so you have chicken in your soup. And, and, And we didn't quite follow the rules. We accidentally hit the high speed when we threw the chicken in. And the chicken disappeared. It became very good tasting chicken slurry or something. I don't know. Didn't look great, but it actually tasted good. But they're, they're powerful, okay? So imagine I invited you over to my house. And, and I'm going to make you a smoothie in my Vitamix. I'm going to throw a banana in there, an apple, throw a pineapple in there, an orange. And then just to show off, I'm throwing the whole apricot in, pit and all, just to show off. Now I give you the smoothie and the cup, there it is. And you say to me, you know, I'll just take the banana part of that smoothie. Does that make any sense? No, it doesn't, right? It's all one thing at this point. And this is how the fruit of the Spirit works. As we come to this portion, as Paul says, what's the result of walking in the Spirit? We come here and we see this is fruit of the Spirit, but get this, it's actually the word is singular. It's one thing. All of these things are together. Think of it like a smoothie. You can't pick and choose any of these items. You can't pull one out and say, this is the one for me. On your, your sushi, I say it's, it can't be seen as a buffet. A buffet, you go and you're like, I like some of that and some of that. Don't want any of that. And, but this is for, you can't pick and choose. Why am I saying this? Because if you're living in the spirit, the expectation is all of these are going to start to be characteristics of your life. You know what happens sometimes? We look at this list, we go through, and, oh, you know, I, yeah, I need some love and joy and peace and uh, patience. Uh, I'm not a really a patient person, so that one's not for me. You know, you don't, I was not wired for patience, okay? And if you know my family, you know, we are not the patient people, right? So I'll just let somebody else be patient. Is that what this is saying? No. It's not saying you can pick and choose. In fact, it's not saying that any of this These traits, uh, back to your associate, they're not dependent on our natural abilities, our backgrounds, or our personalities. 
Because remember the analogy of life in the flesh and life in the spirit, right? On your own, you don't have any ability to do any of this anyway. And it's not about what you have the ability to do. It's about when you're, when you're connected to the spirit, when you're walking with the spirit, that's what gives you the ability to do these things. So it doesn't matter how you're wired personality-wise. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter any of those things because this isn't about you. It's about the spirit. So we can't look through this list and we're continuing on and, oh yeah, oh, kindness, that's goodness, faithfulness. Gentleness, ah, I'm a man. I'll leave the gentleness for my wife. Are, are these uh, engendered categories? No, they're not. This is what we all should be. You see, sometimes when you learn another language, you'll find that there's sometimes a word in one language and you can't find a corresponding single word in another language. So to describe this word, you have to use lots of words in another language, right? There's just no comparison. This is kind of the case. There's no fruit that we have that's like this. There's no like human trait that quite describes the fruit of the Spirit. So, so what Paul's actually saying here is the fruit of the Spirit is singular. The fruit, it, it's kind of a love, joy, peace sort of thing. It, it has patience and kindness, goodness. These aren't individual fruits. This is one thing. And Paul's saying to be walking in the Spirit, this, this kind of, um, these traits are going to start being manifest in your life. Every believer is told to have this. Every believer. And so, so as we come back then, thinking about that question we had at the beginning of the sermon, remember the question? Can a Christian do whatever he or she wants to do? The way I answered that was yes. I believe that's the case. But here's the key to understanding it and being able to answer is yes. The answer is the Spirit is working in us. The Spirit-led life will produce fruit. So can a believer do whatever he or she wants? Yes, because the Spirit starts to change what I want. See, what Paul is saying is, if you are actually walking with the Spirit, if the Spirit has breathed new life into you, and, and you actually you, you are trusting in Christ, then you are going to start to change. The, the list of the, fl- the works of the flesh, that's gonna, you're just going to start looking less and less like that. And this fruit of the Spirit, you're going to start looking more and more like that. But you, the desires of your heart are going to change. So yes, I can do whatever I want, but what I want is changing. And that's so key to understanding the freedom that we have in Christ. How does our freedom not just lead to unrestrained sin? Because we actually have the Spirit working in us and changing us. So let's talk about what this means this morning. How do we respond to God's Word? Well, we are told to walk by the Spirit. This is a command. Paul gave this, and he expected the people in the Galatian church to obey this command. So he, he didn't think it was something mysterious or only for certain Christians, you know, like those, those ones who are very mystical, and they get off to the mountain by themselves and meditate, and they really know what it means to walk by the Spirit. No, this is actually for all of us. And what is this ultimately all about? Well, it comes back to the issue that Paul's been writing about the whole time. To walk in the Spirit is to rely on the Spirit. It's to avoid this life where I'm relying on me. I'm trying to add to the gospel. I'm trying to add some works to it. No, the only way I'm made right with God is through Christ. And so walking in the Spirit is equivalent to me trusting Christ and Christ alone. If you've never been at a place where you've done that in your life, this is what you need in your life is to stop trusting your ability to make yourself right with God. Stop trusting your ability to clean yourself up and to trust Christ and his ability. 
And I want to talk about this in two ways. I want to extend the metaphor of fruit in two ways to kind of give a little bit more um, understanding here, perhaps. First of all, let's, let's talk about fruit tree. Let's use the metaphor of a fruit tree. We've been talking about fruit, right? Well, fruit grows on a fruit tree. And let's say you have a fruit tree in your garden and the fruit on it is not looking so great. What do you do? I look at the tree. Do you go over and look at the fruit and say, come on, fruit? Do you look at it, stare at it? Do you kind of caress it a little bit, sing to it? And you say, no, a tree needs fertilizer. So you go and get fertilizer and you kind of put it on the fruit, right? No, that's dumb, right? What do you fertilize? You fertilize the roots. And you see, as Paul is talking about this, he didn't intend us to get to this passage and to go like, I'm going to just focus on the fruit. He's saying the fruit is the result of the root. And the whole time he's talking about what are you rooted in? Are you rooted in self-dependence? Are you rooted in dependence on Christ? So we're not supposed to look at this list and say, oh man, and let's just call the, the works of the flesh here like the fruit of sin for a moment. If I have sin in my life, I'm not supposed to look at that and say, oh man, I, I have this anger problem, so what do I do? I'm going to just focus on this anger problem, so I'm going to go get some anger management books. Well, they might help a little, but what's your big need at that point? Well, it's to look at the root of the issue. Where is that coming from? What's producing that? And there's always going to be a root issue. It's going to be me relying on myself in some way, me trying to find my identity in something other than Christ, me believing something false that's not lined up with who God is. And the same thing is true with the fruit of the Spirit. I look at this, I'm like, oh, yeah, I don't have much peace in my life. I'm going to go get peace. Is that what we do? We just go and buy some books on peace, and we say, okay, I'm going to stiff upper lip. I'm going to generate some peace in my life. Well, no, it doesn't work. We, you, you focus on the root, and the root is walking in the Spirit. The root is depending on God. So we, we look at these things, and we, and, and we need to see our focus isn't intended to be on the fruit. It's intended to be on the root. Now, our second analogy kind of follows suit, but I'm going to kind of... Um, not really contradict myself, but as you look at it, you go, you are going to say, well, how do I grow fruit? And I just said, don't focus on the fruit, but it is a question. If you're saying, man, I'm looking at this list and I know I need to grow. So how do I do this? What's the steps? Uh, well, let's use another analogy of a gardener. We're going to talk more about all these things next week, but again, gardening really works with the whole idea of fruit. So we'll use that one. How does a gardener grow fruit? Does a gardener, does she have the ability to look at a seed and say, sprout? Well, no, right? Or do you walk to a branch and say, grow an apple? Does that work? No, it doesn't. Who gives the seed the ability to sprout? Who puts life into the seed? Who causes the tree to grow an apple? Well, these are all works of God. So what does the gardener do? Well, the gardener in faith that God is the one who gives life, uh, the gardener goes and participates with God. The gardener goes and cultivates an environment that anticipates God's work. So the gardener might go and till the soil and prepare it for the seed. The gardener might remove rocks and weeds that would, get, that would hinder the growth of the seed. The gardener might do things to help the seed grow with fertilizing it and watering it and all those things. 
But all that is done in faith that God is going to cause the seed to grow. The same thing holds true in the Christian life. How do you grow in these things? Well, it's God who, who causes new life. It's God who develops peace and joy and patience and all those things. But God also allows us to come and participate with him. He allows us to cultivate an environment for growth, and he also allows us to live in a way that hinders growth. So as a Christian, what do I do? Well, are there some rocks and weeds I should be removing, some habits and practices that maybe get in the way of what God wants to do? Are there things that I can do that act as fertilizer, reading my Bible, going to church, being with Christian community? Do these things help? Absolutely. Now, can I use all those things as a form of self-reliance? Oh, absolutely. And that's one of the challenges we have is we do have the ability, and actually as humans, we have the tendency to kind of go like this and kind of go like that and start relying on ourselves. And this is a need to preach the gospel to ourselves daily and to be in the scriptures and and to be challenging one another to say, oh, self-reliance, you got to rely on the gospel. It's all about Christ. That's why we preach the gospel continually in church because we so easily move to a place of self-reliance. And we need to be reminded again and again, it's all about Christ. It's all about walking in the Spirit. It's all about reliance on the Spirit. So I can do these things. You see, I can approach the Bible. I can read the Bible as a, man, I'm going to figure this out, and I'm going to find the formula to fix myself and make myself better. But is that what it's meant to be? Well, no, reading the Bible is about, you're supposed to walk with the Spirit and rely on the Spirit. So reading the Bible is really about getting to know the author of the Bible, Getting to know God himself. Because I'm supposed to be in step with God. I'm supposed to, be, to rely on God. And so the Bible is a way of me getting to know him. But one is self-reliance. The other one is saying, oh, I'm, I'm, I need to rely on you, God. Teach me who you are so that I can. You see these things? I hope you do. I hope as you look at this list of things, maybe you see areas in the one list that yeah, I need to get, get rid of these things, and maybe the other list you say, man, I fall short here a little bit. I, I hope your response isn't to go and zoom in and focus in on those things. I hope you're, you're, what you're hearing today is I need to depend on Christ more. I need to stop depending on myself. A prayer, help me, God, to do this. These are the things we need. One of the things these, these lists do is they do help us evaluate ourselves. If we are living in the Spirit, one list should be decreasing in my life. The other should be increasing. And if it's not, there might be an issue there. And the response to it is not to try harder. So we saw last week, I think Matt said this, we're not called to try harder, we're tra- told to draw closer. And those are good words. So in this process, I want to pray for you. So I'm going to ask you to stand and and let's ask God for his help today in this. And then we'll come back to this text again next week. So stand with me and, and let us pray. Let us pray. God, again, we thank you. We thank you for allowing us to open your word. Thank you for these reminders. I know all too well the, the reality of, of my human nature even with new life breathed into it, my, my tendency is to rely on myself. God, I thank you for reminders. Reminders to once again draw close to you. 
once again to rely on you. Lord, even in hearing this, it's tricky because even in trying to draw close to you, we can fall into self-reliance. And so, God, we need your spirit. We need your help in this process. I know you are working on each person in different ways in this room. And whether that is today someone contemplating putting their trust in Christ alone for the first time, or if it's just a reminder again of, yes, that's what the gospel is. I believe that. I'm, I'm trusting Christ. I'm depending on him. God, would you work those things out? God, this morning, um, we thank you for reminders. And I know as we go from here, we go into a week that has a lot of things unknown to us, nothing unknown to you. Nothing is going to confound you or upset your plans. And so, God, as we go into our week, walk with us. Help us to speak words of kindness and truth and grace and love. Help us to love others like you love us. Help us to point people to you. Help us to be your body in this dark world, a light in the world. And so, God, I lift up this congregation to you this morning and ask that you would do just that. We thank you and we glorify you and we pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.